Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, I'm in a really bad mood because I have a bad back. It's terrible, isn't it? You know, there's all these terrible things going on around the world, Gaza, India, COVID. But right now, I would just like to be able to walk around without my back hurting. So pathetic, I know, but there we go. We're all human. Uh, I shall attempt to overcome this uh, uh, and talk you through the posts for the week. So the first up was a guest post by Oliver Scanlon, who sent something in about a a sort of little research topic, which is what happened when different donors, aid donors in the same place, fight, collide, disagree, have a different worldview. And he's based uh, this post on his experience in, uh, in Bangladesh, where he found donors taking polar opposite approaches to to similar issues. Um, And in particular, he says, I witnessed two interventions engaged in a Shakespearean tragedy. The first was funded by a prominent INGO, international NGO, to safeguard the land rights of local indigenous people. The second was a USAID-funded conservation initiative premised on the negation of those rights. So then he digs, digs in a bit more and says, Well, land rights advocates generally take the view that the main causes of forest loss are complex, emerging from powerful political economic forces presided over by a host of politically influential actors at local and national level. Forest departments and conservationists, and by extension the donors that support them, tend to pin the blame on poor people. An analysis of colonial vintage steeped in Malthusian understandings of the relationship between poverty and the environment. So put it very crudely, the land rights advocates try and get power and uh, decision making into the hands of, of, of indigenous peoples and local, local populations. The conservationists try and get poor people out of there to make the forest safe for the animals and for the forest. And this leads to enormous tensions, people caught in the middle. And I think this this question of, of you know, how do you get some kind of coherence and debate between donors before they go and inflict it on local partners and local communities is a really good topic. Second post of the week was my usual links I liked. Um, the one I'll focus on this one was just a silly one, which is the Oxford comma, right? So the Oxford comma, also known as the serial comma, is the final comma in a list of things. So x y and z you put it after x and y and you put it after uh, after the y and this conflicts because we're told not to put a comma before and but when you don't you get some crazy things so yeah there are these famous examples which this um i had a picture of uh, in the blog so this book is dedicated to my dedicated to my parents Ayn rand and god Ayn Rand and God, right? So if you have the comma after Ayn Rand, you say, this book is dedicated to my parents, Ayn Rand and God. But if you take the comma out, suddenly your parents appear to be Ayn Rand and God, which is very strange. So, and there are lots of very funny ones as well. So I just think that's great. And it's one of those things that keep, comes around every couple of months on Twitter. Someone else has a laugh at the about the Oxford comma because you get some very strange dedications and phrases if you don't use it. I I have lots of more serious stuff in links I liked on COVID and and intellectual property and all the rest of it, but I just thought I'd pick that one up today, probably just to cheer myself up. Now, the third post of the week was um, I've been doing a series of of impact case studies for um, a a research centre I work at at the LSE called the Centre on Public Authority in International Development. And for about four years, a bunch of researchers have been beavering away trying to understand how power really works in 
really messy, complex, fragile and conflict affected settings. And I've done, I think this is the fourth of those um, of those case studies. I've written blogs about each one, talking to the researchers and trying to understand this great thing, you know, in research, in academia, you're funded partly on the basis of whether your research has impact, but nobody quite knows what impact means, still less how it comes about. So it's been quite interesting to just go and talk to researchers. And I've had a couple of posts on big, high profile impact, you know, a woman called Naomi Pendle, who changed the way the UN was uh, able to detect famine early in South Sudan on the basis of her completely unrelated anthropological research. Really impressive. Um, Melissa Parker's work on how poor communities have actually actually dealt with Ebola has led to her, you know, um, uh, some really big impacts and her being part of the COVID response because she has this kind of anthropologist understanding of how people respond to, pan to, to, to pandemics. Um, this this one was a much smaller, you know, more more sort of uh, local example. It's some some work by Ryan O'Byrne and Charles Agano, and their their research is on how South Sudanese refugees in Uganda understand and interact with refugee camp authorities, and how they engage with those authorities when they need help or encounter difficulties. Now that meant that they'd found lots of dodgy stuff. Lot, you know, they'd they'd found bits of corruption, coercion, some things which were not well known, just be, because they'd been interviewing and listening to refugees in those camps. Um, and what happened was that there was then a scandal, and Ryan and Charles were able to um, publicise their work because they had something interesting to say about the scandal. So what struck me in talking to them is 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 the importance of accident. In achieving research impact but it's not just accident so louis pasteur famously discovered germs by accident but he said mm, fortune favors the prepared mind and i think yeah in the modern world fortune favors the prepared mind and the adept social media user and that's what happened with ryan and um with Ryan and Charles. So the accident in question was a corruption scandal in Uganda in early 2018, when officials of the office of the Prime Minister and the UN were accused of inflating refugee numbers so that staff could pocket extra money and other resources. So this is this is a classic scam. You create a thousand non-existent refugees and then you pocket the money that goes to them. And that's been going on since you know, Tsarist Russia. Gogol's book Dead Souls is about military commanders doing this in, in, in Tsarist Russia. Um, but there was also a widespread abuse of food, funds and other resources destined for refugee settlements. Um, so Charles and Ryan wrote a blog post on the scandal for the Africa at the LSE platform um, and promoted it heavily via Facebook through their connections with the South Sudanese diaspora. <coughs> and this and this meant that the blog was reposted loads of times and got lots of pickup. And so what happened? Well, it didn't rock the world you know they, they didn't appear on you know major national tv but they got some media inquiries they did a bit of work for reuters a bunch of people got in touch with them and said actually we're looking for a research topic this looks really interesting so it sort of created little ripples in the pond and i think that's really interesting because you know most researchers are not doing glamorous kind of high profile big hitting stuff they're beavering away studying something like you know power relations in refugee camps in south sudan but even there if you respond well to a scandal or an opportunity, you can have a bit more impact with your research. So overall lessons, researchers need to be on the lookout for the opportunities presented by critical junctures such as scandals and crises, even if their research is not yet completed. And they will get more impact if they use social media to draw attention to their work. 
their impact may only but be warned, you know, the impact may only be loosely connected to the actual subject of their research. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I've got a couple more of those coming and then I'll have to write some sort of overview of what I've learned from talking to all these people about the impact of their research. Final post of the week was about Colombia. Yeah, to my background, yeah, I cut my teeth on Latin America. I worked on Latin America for many years uh, early on in my career. And I always love coming back to Latin America to find out what's going on. And at the moment, there have been three weeks of protests and some of them quite bloody. There have been uh, uh, dozens of deaths. And one of, my, one of my students at the LSE, one of my activism students, Daniel Duran, got in touch and said, um, could I help, you know, draw attention to this because she she and her Colombian uh, fellows fellow students felt that there wasn't enough coverage in the in the, in the Western press so I said sure write something on the blog so she got together with a colleague uh, Lorenzo Uribe and there is a really nice post on trying to sort of give a bit of background it's a classic background kind of post so it's saying that you know there are various things about the protests in Colombia which are new you know the scale the location the issues and the kinds of people who are participating them. And the fact that they've actually got a lot of public support. But some things haven't changed, and that is that the state and the government has responded violently and with no intention of listening to the, to the message of the protesters. And then Daniela and Lorenzo go into their background and say, basically, there was, everything changed in 2016. Before 2016, Every protest was was directly related to the civil conflict. You know, Colombia had this appalling 50 year long war, more than 50 years, 60 years of war. Um, and all the protests before 2016 were about whether you were condemning the guerrillas, condemning the government, expressing support for the peace process. The war became the, the sort of only lens for, for, for public debate. But in 2016, there was a peace, peace agreement between the government and the, the main guerrilla group, the FARC. And that suddenly meant that Colombia could sort of return to normal in terms of Latin American politics. So the agreement gave Colombia the opportunity to move beyond half a century of armed conflict and begin to address issues that up to then had been completely invisible. Youth unemployment, extreme income inequality, corruption, the quality of public education, racism, classism, police brutality, all suddenly became part of the public agenda. So that's really interesting. So you, know, the, the, you suddenly got this much wider range of conversations, range of topics for protests. Um, and these took off before the pandemic in 2019. You got a first wave of mass protests, but they came to an end with the arrival of COVID-19. Everything was locked down. Um, but then since then, you've had this classic effect, which COVID has had in many countries, which is it has exacerbated inequalities. And in the case of Colombia and many Latin American countries, there has been a really fragmented and inept response from the Colombian government. So there's a lot of anger there as well. And the government has not really has not risen to the challenge, according to Daniela Lorenzo. They've refused the approval of a basic income. Lots of people, especially in the informal economy, driven into poverty. So this has kind of turbocharged the protest movement. In addition, the spark, the final spark for this wave of protests was that in the middle of all this, the government issued, tried to institute a very technocratic tax reform, which you know excluded some groups, wasn't terribly progressive, 
you know, but when you have a tax reform, there are always going to be winners and losers. But it seems crazy politically to do it when everybody's traumatized by a pandemic because it's going to become a, a lightning rod for people's anger, which is what's exactly what's happened in Colombia. So the government has actually withdrawn the tax reform, but the protests are continuing, which is another classic sort of um, uh, thing that happens in these protest spikes. A bit more about why these protests are different. It's not just the issues at stake, but the, the geographical and social composition of the protests. So the protests are no longer just in the main cities, they're in rural villages, and it's no longer something that university and middle class student, um, university students and middle class kids do. Youths from some of the poorest neighborhoods and some of the poorest areas of the cities have been where these marches and protests are taking place. So that's really quite interesting that um, it's spread and I think the Colombian government should be very worried about that fact that it's spread. Um, unfortunately, the government is kind of basically on automatic behaving as if the war was still going on and is just trying to lock down and repress and um, uh, tell the story that all the protesters are just leftist communist troublemakers. They've killed, the police have killed at least 42 people. But also more worryingly, other signs of the old days have come back armed civilians on the streets, uh, shooting uh, and protecting themselves against vandals, takes us back to the 2000s and the whole sort of phenomenon of paramilitary violence in Colombia. So there are some things to be really worried about, but it is a, also just a really interesting and exciting moment, I think, for young Colombians. And that's why Dan Daniela and Lorenzo wanted to write about it. So on that sort of partially uplifting note, I shall leave you and we'll talk next week. Bye.